0: First saying, the first beatitude, kind of the launch pad, uh, the starting point for all of the other sayings that Jesus is going to bring on this beautiful day on the mountainside. And you know what, church? If we can get the first one right, then we have a good chance of getting the other ones right. Uh, Does anyone remember a show called Gladiators that was on on Saturday nights years ago? Yes, a few of you. Or if you watch any of those kind of programs where there's a bit of an assault course, you know those things where you have to jump on and grab a ring and then you swing to the next one, and then you grab, yeah, you all know what I'm talking about. You have to, that's kind of what these Beatitudes are like. You swing from the first to the second, from the second to the third, from the third to the fourth, up to the eighth, and you build true Christian character. You build kingdom character. So keep that in mind as we go through these over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, so that first ring that we grab, that is when we realize that we are spiritually impoverished, When we realize actually that we have nothing to give God, we come to him with nothing to give him and we fully rely on him for everything. We are what some would call spiritually bankrupt. We, we are literally bankrupt before him. We come to God with nothing because we have nothing. We have nothing to offer him. And the first step in forming this true and lasting kingdom character is to acknowledge this, to become his subject and submit yourself to him. Doesn't it fit kind of in with the coronation theme this weekend? You know, yesterday people were asked to um, submit themselves to the service of the king. Well, we are all in service of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're all to submit ourselves to Him, to His rulership and His reign over His kingdom. And when you come to God, when you acknowledge that you need Him, you take that first step. You've taken hold of that first ring, and you're ready to swing and grab hold of the next. And as we go through all of the Beatitudes, as I've said, the first leads to the second, and on and on it goes. With God guiding us each step of the way and making it possible for us, his blessed and fortunate ones. You know that God calls you blessed this morning. He calls you blessed. He calls you happy. He calls you most fortunate. And then we take hold of this true kingdom character. As I've said before, church, these are marks of a true believer. These are marks of a faithful follower of Jesus, one who has been truly transformed by the grace and goodness of God. And the goal is to grab hold of every single one of those rings and have that complete character, that kingdom character that God wants each of us to have. Church, these are goals. These are aspirations. And we should all desire to see this character formed in our lives. These are be attitudes, okay? These are be, these are attitudes that we are to be. These traits, the traits found within these profound sayings from the mouth of Jesus are to form the very nature and character that is to be found in each of us as a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. This is kingdom character. And kingdom character will then help us to live with kingdom conduct. And you'll find as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, Jesus speaks of kingdom character, and then he moves into kingdom conduct. And you'll see that as we progress through the sermon. I want to make, make it clear today that these are not, okay, it's, it's important to understand these are not conditions for salvation or standards that we must attain in order to enter the kingdom of God, okay? That's not what these are. These these are simply characteristics of those who are in God's kingdom. They are, in fact, as one commentator puts it, they are declarations of God's grace. In our introduction, many months ago, we considered the concept of kingdom. Again, it fits in with the coronation yesterday. And that Jesus, in his first coming to earth, had ushered in this new and fresh revelation of God's kingdom, the king's domain. That's where we get the word kingdom from. It's a shortened version of the king's domain. This is a spiritual kingdom, not a material earthly domain, but one that would exist in the hearts and lives of those who would hear his words, follow his example, and become a true disciple. In our introduction, we read the well-known words of Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. From Matthew 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I like the way um, a translation called God's Word translation has this verse. From then, Jesus began to tell people, turn to God, change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. Church, the kingdom of heaven was closed. It was in their midst. It was right there because the king was there the kingdom of heaven is near the kingdom of heaven is at hand and because the kingdom of God was coming near everything was about to change I want to go this morning to a very well-known passage in the old testament from a book that I now know that I now know is known as the fifth gospel I've never heard that before but did you know there was a fifth gospel well there is we'll get there in a minute there's good reason that it's called this. It's a book written by one of God's Old Testament messengers, one of the major prophets, a man who lived in the 8th century BC, and his name is Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah is actually known by many as the fifth gospel. And Isaiah is called by God to bring words of judgment, words of correction, words of exhortation to the southern kingdom of Judah in the years leading up to their exile which comes at the hands of the Babylonians, a mighty kingdom from the north. And, and we all know there's, there are many prophetic themes that are to be found in the book of Isaiah, but one of the most fascinating is the theme of Messiah, the theme of Messiah. Isaiah is a book filled with what we call messianic prophecies, and this is why it carries the nickname, the fifth gospel. Look, you know many of them. You could all quote Isaiah 9-7, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Can you say amen? Amen. And what about this? Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he, there's an important word, but But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. And all God's people said, amen. Can you see what I'm getting at here? Isaiah, the fifth gospel, so much about Jesus in there. And those of us, all of us with the benefit of hindsight and history and the Word of God know that both of these prophecies along with many, many others were fulfilled in the person, in the life, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look, we could spend all morning, we could spend years looking at and studying all the prophecies in Isaiah concerning the Messiah. But time won't allow it. Thankfully, says you... (laughs) maybe for another time. The passage that I want to take us to this morning is found in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. But before we read it together, I want to remind you of something that is key in our quest to understanding and fully appreciating the profound words that Jesus spoke to his disciples and his followers on this mountainside over 2,000 years ago. And it's this, that many of the Beatitudes, many of these signs, most of these sayings, in fact, that gives us this beautiful description of kingdom character. They find their root and their foundation in the Old Testament. Okay? That's where we need to go. Every time we look at the Beatitude, we need to go to the Old Testament. You see, Jesus knows his Bible, unlike many of you this morning. He's recalled out. But Jesus, he knows his Bible. He knows the Hebrew scriptures. And he uses passages and phrases from the word of God, many from the prophet Isaiah, to bring his kingdom mandate, these declarations of God's grace to the people of God. You have to understand that when the people on this day heard Jesus say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit," or blessed are the meek, these were not words that they were hearing for the first time because many of these words and phrases were already to be found in the Word of God. Most notably, in the Psalms and in the Book of the Prophets, in the Books of the Prophets. And in part two of our study, we read together Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need of him. Okay? And that we sang. say it with me again, they have nothing yet gain everything. And and maybe some of you remember the verses from the Old Testament that Jesus used and quoted when he spoke these words to those who were listening on this day. And if you do, your memory's a lot better than mine. And Jesus took his inspiration from this book, from Isaiah, from this fifth gospel, and he quoted Isaiah 57 and Isaiah 56. I don't have time to read them this morning. And in both of these passages from Isaiah, we find the foundation and the inspiration for what Jesus declares. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and it should be no surprise to us that when Jesus opens his mouth to speak again to bring us his second declaration, that his words find their foundation in the word of God right there in the Old Testament. And what does he say next? Say it with me. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, the contemporary English version has it like this. God blesses those people who grieve. They will find comfort. Again here, as with Jesus' first declaration, he uses the very word of God found in the prophet Isaiah as his foundation and his inspiration. Are you all following me, church? Am I going too fast? No, it's all right? Joanne's taking notes, sir. can see smoke there. And he uses a phrase from one of the most well-known and quoted messianic prophecies from a passage that we all know and love. I was actually so proud of myself yesterday because I said the Felgate, they actually read it at the coronation and I said, I'm preaching on that. And he said, brother, that's confirmation. (laughs) There we go. And it's a a passage that you all know so well. It's Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, look, to comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He's given me a garment of praise. We all know it. Instead of the spirit of despair, beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning. Well, did you see it? Did you hear it? To comfort all who mourn. As I always say, anything with a lot of comfort in it is a good thing. You're going to hear a lot about comfort this morning. To appoint unto them that morn, to give them beautiful ashes joy, and to give give them joy, and to place on them this beautiful garment of praise. We know and understand that this was originally given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the southern kingdom of Judah by the prophet Isaiah, who was God's man, God's messenger to God's people at that time. But you know what, Isaiah, I was thinking about this. Isaiah, maybe without even knowing, records for us one of the most wonderful and incredible messianic prophecies ever written in all of scripture. Did he even know what he was, did he really know what he was writing? Did he know what would happen all those years later when the Messiah came? And I know that many of you are thinking about the passage that was read yesterday in the coronation service, in the Gospel of Luke. And I love this passage where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as he always did. But this Sabbath will be very different for Jesus and everyone there. And on this day, it is Jesus who has the honor and privilege of standing to read the weekly portion from the scriptures. And as he stands to read, look, church, I have no doubt God has already gone before and sovereignly willed it and worked it out that Jesus, that when Jesus stands to read, he reads this exact portion from the prophet Isaiah concerning the Messiah and what the Messiah will do and bring. And in an amazing sequence of events, Jesus stands, the scroll is given to him, he reads the portion from Isaiah 61, he closes the scroll, he hands it to the synagogue, the synagogue leader, and then what does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Total silence in the synagogue. Total silence. You could hear a pin drop. Silence and disbelief falls over that synagogue. But Jesus makes it clear. Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. Why? Because the Messiah is among them. And because the Messiah has come, and so is his kingdom, the very kingdom of God. And those who would follow after Jesus, who would live within the kingdom as its citizens, would live out their lives with this kingdom character and with kingdom conduct. And that is what the Beatitudes are all about. As I've said, they are declarations of God's grace. They are proclamations of the king and his kingdom. And we know where we start. We start when we recognize that we are spiritually impoverished, when we have nothing to give God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We start with knowing that we can do nothing of ourselves, that we are spiritually bankrupt before God and we continue in this state knowing that we have to fully rely on God in order to be made right with him. And then we must mourn. Then we must mourn. Church, then there must be a weeping. There must be grief and there must be sorrow. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Say it with me. They weep real tears, yet find great joy. Say it again. They weep real tears, yet find great joy. There's two questions you might have in your mind right now. Pete, what are we to weep for? And in what or who do we find this great joy? You see, in this proclamation of Jesus, in this declaration of God's grace, we have one of the greatest paradoxes found in all of Scripture Here, Jesus is telling us plainly and directly that those who mourn are blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. They are fortunate. They are happy in the truest sense. They find themselves in an enviable state. Church, let's be honest this morning. This makes very little sense. Sure, it doesn't. Makes very little sense. Have you ever heard of a happy mourner? No. I don't think anyone here this morning would equate mourning with blessing because I sure don't. But for Jesus, for, for, for citizens of his kingdom, mourning brings a blessing like no other. And it also brings the promise of God's comfort and his consolation. Look, let's get a little deeper into this and try and understand what Jesus is saying because he might not be saying what you think he might be saying. Let's start with what he's not saying, okay? This verse is not about mourning the death of a loved one, right? Let's start there. I see, I see this verse all the time on order of services for funerals. I see it on sympathy cards. I see people posting it when someone's lost a loved one. But the words of Jesus here have nothing to do with mourning the death of a family member or friend, this is not what he has in mind when he tells his closest followers, blessed are they who mourn. You all know my pet hate. It's just getting, grabbing a verse and just ripping it clean out of its context and using it for something that it has nothing to do with. Can you say amen? <laughs> I can't stand that. And when it's my time to go, right? Please don't have this verse anywhere near my funeral because if you do, I'll break the casket open, and I'll reach out and I'll strangle you. All right? Don't do it, church. Don't forget the golden rule of Bible study. Context, context, context. That's it. Read around it. Read before it. Read after it. Find out what it means. Look, we've already looked a little bit at the foundation of Jesus' words found in Isaiah. And we know that he was writing to the southern kingdom of Judah, And in a few years' time, Judah would be attacked, Jerusalem destroyed, and the people of God would be taken north. They'd be ripped away from where they lived, from the life that they knew, from from all they know by the pagan Babylonians. And the question we must answer this morning is, why are they taken? Why does God allow this to happen to his own people? Well, I will tell you why. Because of their rebellion and their sin against God. Alan shared last week about the Northern Kingdom, that God actually, it was in his plan to do it. They were so rebellious and so sinful, God took them out of their land. A God who had been so patient and long-suffering, a God who had given them countless chances to repent of their wicked ways and follow after him and keep his law. But you know what, church? They didn't. They didn't do it. What did they do instead? They just did what they wanted. They did their own thing. They lived in open rebellion against the God who loved them and cared for them and who had blessed them for so many generations. And as I've said, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away many years before for exactly the same thing, and now it's happening to the people of Judah. Imagine that you're in the tribe of Judah. Now you're found in a strange land, ruled by a ruthless and tyrannical king. You're now a slave. You've lost your freedoms that you once had. You've been ripped away from the life that you had in Judah, and now you're subject to a king who knows nothing of your past life and the God you served. And he he really doesn't care. And what do you do? All you can do there is mourn. You mourn. All you can do is weep with despair and grief. Why? Because you're brokenhearted. You're crushed. And now you are a captive. Just like the prophet Isaiah said. By the rivers, by the rivers, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. Why? When we remember Zion. Great we song, so true. Those people knew why they were there. They realized why they were there because they've forgotten to serve the Lord their God. You weep and you wail, you lament and you mourn. You think, I had it so good back in Judah, but your sin and rebellion has now brought you to Babylon. But here's the good news that Isaiah brings God won't leave you like that. He will bring comfort to you. He will bring consolation to you. He promises to give his people beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness, and a garment of praise. Yes, this passage in Isaiah 1 is a wonderful prophecy which Jesus fulfills right down to the last jot and tittle. but it was originally, remember, it was originally given to the people of Judah, and they sure needed it when they got to Babylon. Oh, they needed it. God says to the people of Judah, captives in Babylon, the crushed and brokenhearted, when you realize what has brought you here, you will mourn, you will weep, you will lament, but I will not leave you there. I will bring comfort to you. I will come to you with compassion and consolation. And church, do you know what? God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. And now we find Jesus on this mountainside proclaiming the very same promise to those gathered many, many hundreds of years later, and the promise comes again to the people of God. When you mourn, when you weep, when you lament, you will experience the very comfort and consolation of God. And that is why God calls you blessed. And you know what? This mourning is for the very same reason that the Judahites mourned in captivity. It's because of something that we don't like to talk much about these days. What is it, church? Sin. It's sin. It's sin. Sin. What is sin? Sin is described in the Bible as transgression of the law of God and rebellion against God. To be a sinner is to go against God's law and to live in rebellion against God, to do what you want, to live the way you want, and to completely disregard the law of God. It's to live in open rebellion against the God who is the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer of the universe. And Jesus here. He's making a proclamation and a declaration regarding the kingdom character of those who would follow him and what their attitude to sin will be. This is what Jesus is talking about. Should his disciples enjoy sin? Tell me. No. Should they celebrate sin? No. Should they live in sin? No. No. What they are to do is they are to mourn sin. They are to mourn it they are to mourn and they are to mourn sin in exactly the same way that they would mourn the loss of a loved one. With a deep despair, with sorrow, with grief, with lament. For those of you who have lost someone that you love dearly, that is the way that we should feel about sin. We are to mourn and lament in exactly the same fashion. Because Jesus uses exactly the same word here as he would when speaking of mourning a loved one. Church, this is not a casual, shallow, surface-level grief. It's a deep despair brought on by a crushing of the heart, a brokenness of spirit, an overwhelming of your emotions at the recognition of who we are, sinners before a holy God. First, we recognize that we are spiritually poor, that we have nothing to offer to offer a holy God. And then we mourn. We see ourselves for what we truly are, sinners before a righteous God. I believe that those taken away to Babylon mourned and wept for their own sin and it brought them to deep despair. And church, we are to do the same. We should be continually mourning sin and its effect in our lives. And here's the truth, church. A big part of having a kingdom character is to have a lamenting and despairing attitude when it comes to sin. Sin is... Is serious. God takes it seriously, and we need to take it seriously, and we need to deal with it seriously. Listen to David's attitude to sin after being confronted by the prophet Nathan, Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. out mine iniquities, say it with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew your right spirit within me. Church, this is the beatitude that we all need in our lives. This is kingdom character. And listen to the words of the Apostle James as he writes to the early church. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw nigh or draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Church, that's for us. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. That doesn't preach very well. People don't really want to hear that, do they? Do you feel uplifted this morning? (laughs) We'll get there in a second though. Be afflicted, mourn, weep, clean your hands, purify your hearts, draw near to God. This should be our attitude to sin. And here's the most wonderful truth. When we're truly broken by it, when we're crushed by it, God has a promise for us. You will be comforted. God will come alongside you. The God of all comfort will come to you. Blessed are they who mourn, they will be comforted. Say it with me. They weep real tears, yet find great joy. And do you know what, church? I believe that Jesus here is simply proclaiming the good news. That's what this is. It's a declaration of God's grace. It's a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here is the gospel right here. Maybe you've read this before and you thought, I have no idea what this is talking about. It's the gospel. The Beatitudes are the gospel. This is the message of hope and salvation through Jesus Christ. You see, when you mourn over your sin, when you mourn your rebellion against the holy God, the very comfort of God can be given to you and you become one of the blessed ones. When you mourn the sin and effects of sin in your life, you open yourself up to the comfort and consolation of God, which leads to blessing. This is the great paradox, church. These people are happy mourners. They are blessed mourners. You can be a happy mourner. Who's ever heard of such a thing? But this is what God, when you're in deep despair concerning your sin, he comes alongside you. You know, that's exactly what this Greek word means here, comfort. It means that God will come alongside you. He comes to you and what does he do? He saves you. He gives you his free gift of salvation. Comfort and consolation come right alongside you, when you recognize your own sin and you confess it before him, God comes to you and brings consolation through Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross of Calvary. Isn't that good news this morning? Church, this is true kingdom character. And when you be this attitude, God comes to you and he calls you blessed. He seals you with the Holy Spirit and he makes you a son or a daughter of the king. God comforts the blessed who mourn. He saves those who first realize their need of him and then who deal seriously with their sin. God comforts and brings consolation to the fortunate, the happy and the enviable ones who mourn their own sin and realize their need of a savior. Church, sin needs to be dealt with and there's only one solution, Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Alongside true repentance and a turning around, you turn around and you walk towards God. What did did Jesus say at the beginning of his ministry? Turn to God, change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near and I know you all know Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The new living has it like this. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which, lack, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Did you hear what Paul just said, church? God wants us to experience the kind of sorrow that leads us away from sin. That's what he wants in all of our lives. He wants us to mourn our sin, to be in deep despair over it, and then come to him and find salvation in Jesus Christ. And we will be those happy mourners, the blessed mourners, the most fortunate of mourners. Who knew that mourning could bring so much joy? But church, in the kingdom of God, it does. Mourning brings a blessing like no other. They weep real tears, yet find great joy. Church, I know this is so countercultural and so counterintuitive, but this is exactly the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's the upside down kingdom, it's the counterintuitive kingdom, it's it's everything's different from the way it is in the world. It doesn't work like the world. In the kingdom of God, mourning brings blessing. Where else would this happen? Nowhere. Not in the world we live in. You know why? Because in our world, sin is celebrated. It's celebrated, a place where sin is enjoyed and encouraged. This is not to be our attitude to sin. We are to mourn it with a deep despair and sorrow. We are to live out this kingdom characteristic every single day. How do we do this? I know most of you, if not all of you, have already mourned your sin in a way. And you're saved, you're sanctified, you're set free. But how do we take this into our daily lives? How do, we, how do we build this into our kingdom character? It's really simple. Every day, we take sin seriously. We continue to take it seriously, and we deal with it. When we feel God, and we will, when we let him down, and we will, when we mess up, who's ever messed up? It's like your hand up. You all should have your hands up when we mess up when we're tempted when we fall into sin our attitude to it should be one of sorrow and despair and if you're, if you're willfully being, being disobedient to God and living in continual sin and you feel no sorrow over it then I would have to question your standing in the kingdom of God seriously if sin doesn't bring you sorrow you have a serious problem You see, true citizens of the kingdom will be broken by sin. They will be crushed by sin. When you let the Lord down, you will feel it and you will know it. We've all felt it, haven't we? We all know what that feels like. And you will want, you will desire to come to him with godly sorrow and godly repentance. You know what, church? It's a really good thing to weep over your sin. It's a really good thing to sorrow and have a deep despair when you fail the Lord. That shows him that you have true kingdom character. And you know what? It will lead you to his comfort and consolation coming alongside you and his beautiful forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all Wickedness. You see, mourning for sin is not a one time, one off event. Church, it's a lifestyle, it's an everyday thing. Someone told me years ago keep short accounts with Jesus, keep short accounts with the Lord. That is true kingdom character. And here's the most beautiful truth God wants you to come to Him. God wants you to come and confess. God wants you to come so He can bring you comfort and consolation because He's a loving, forgiving, and a gracious God. His desire is to give you that beauty for ashes. His desire is to give you that oil of gladness. His desire is to give you that garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. But first, we must come to him. We must be torn and mourn. We must confess, and then he will bless. Did you like that? Torn and mourn, confess, and blessed. We must come like David did. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We must hear and do what we heard from the Apostle James. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Church, here's the truth this morning. We've all been saved, amen, and our salvation is secure. I can tell you that 100%. You're saved and your salvation is secure, but we still have to fight the flesh and it's a battle every single day. I know, (laughs) I know, and I know you know, it's a real, real battle. We're gonna fall, we're gonna fail God, we're gonna let him down. I can tell you, I do it every single day. Maybe you think of me as some super dupe. I am not, I am (laughs) a, I fail the Lord every minute of every day, but you know what? He wants to bring me that comfort and that consolation when I come to him and confess and he will bless We're gonna fall every single day. But when you have this kingdom character, when you build this character into your life as a citizen of the kingdom, you know that something needs to be done. Don't we just know? You just know that you've messed up. You've let the Lord down. You feel that conviction in your spirit. You know that you've sinned against the Lord. What do you do? Oh, first, we confess it. That's the first thing. Just ignore that. All right, ignore that. First church, we confess it and then we forsake it. What does it mean to confess? To to confess is to agree with God about our behavior and that we have sinned against him. Then we can be open and honest with him about what we have done. Secondly, we forsake it. After confessing the sin, we need to forsake the sin. Just like the woman at the well in John 8, go and sin no more. That's what we have to do. Go. That's forsaking your sin. You go and sin no more. A confession, church, it means nothing if we're not prepared to put an end to our sin. Mourn it, confess it, forsake it, and don't look back. Don't look back. Take the advice of the Apostle James. Let there be tears. Let there be sorrow and grief. Humble yourself before the Lord. Come close to God. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Then step into his forgiveness, into his mercy, into his grace, and let the God of all comfort come alongside you. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to forgive you, but you need to come. You need to confess it, and then he can bless. He wants to strengthen you, to fill you with hope and joy as you serve him and live for him. He doesn't want that relationship to be ruined by anything. He desires that you come to him, torn and mourn, confess, And he will bless. He will lift you up in honor, and you'll be blessed. It's all about having kingdom character, church. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. God blesses those people who grieve, they will find comfort. They weep real tears, yet find great joy. Church, I can tell you this morning: kingdom character brings the very blessing of God. That's what we've got to have. We've got to have that kingdom character. We're his citizens. You're in his kingdom. Nothing can take you out of it. But let's live with the character that he wants us to have. Let's deal with the sin in our lives. Serious. Let's take it seriously because God takes it seriously. I know that at the times in my life when I'm... Really feeling him badly when I'm doing the thing. It's like Paul said, I do the things that I shouldn't. And I, or I, I, What did he say? I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should. That's all of That's me. That's my life. That's my life motto. Put that on the thing. What do you call it? When you get buried. If we're all being honest, that should be on our headstone. I didn't do what I should have done and I did what I shouldn't have done. Amen. That's my life. That's all of our lives but you know what? God's gracious and he's forgiving. He's incredible. And he doesn't forgive us once or twice or thrice. He keeps going. He keeps going. As long as you come and you're torn, you mourn, you confess it, and then he can bless it. And he wants all of us to be blessed. The happy people, the fortunate people, the envy. You know, people should be enviable. People should envy what we have in Jesus Christ. Why don't we stand together? I can talk all morning, but I'm not going to. So why don't you stand with me? We're gonna ask the praise team to come. Church, I hope you were blessed by the word. I know it was maybe a little bit different, but I hope that you've got the message this morning. God, look, if you're here this morning and there's something going on in your life and you know you're letting the, the Lord down, if there's, if there's habitual sin, if you're, if, you're doing, if you're doing something that you know you shouldn't be, and if you feel that conviction, then don't leave it. Come today to him. Just where you are, even right now, just say, Lord, I come and I confess my sin before you. I'm so sorry for what I did yesterday. I'm so sorry for the thought that I had about this morning. I'm so sorry for thinking, that wish Pete would hurry up and shut up. He's going on too long. Confess it before the Lord, and he'll forgive you. He may not forgive you for that. <laughs> Look, he's, he's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. And as, as First John said, if we confess... He's able. He's able. And that's what I want to leave with you this morning.